Kelly had been avoiding the draft and eventually was forced to turn himself in. He was sent to basic training and, 13 weeks after it began, had become an outstanding soldier and the acting sergeant of his platoon. As basic training wound down, the company commander, Captain Wilson, called Kelly into his tiny office. Acting Sergeant Kelly, he said, Sir, sit down. Yes, sir. Wilson looked down at the papers in front of him before he leveled a gaze at Kelly. Out of the 2,000 men in this battalion going through basic training, Captain Wilson said, a hint of pride in his voice, we select two as outstanding basic trainees of the cycle. We automatically invite these two into officer candidate school. Captain Wilson chewed thoughtfully on his cigar for a moment. You have been selected. Congratulations, son. He stood and offered a stout hand. Kelly's face hardened. With respect, sir, I have no interest in being an officer, sir. Captain Wilson leaned back in his chair, bringing his hands together across his stomach. You're going to turn down officer training school, he laughed. Kelly, not even you can be that stupid. Turn it down, and it means you go to war as a grunt. That means you are in the front line getting your ass shot at. It means you're the one who steps on a fucking gook landmine and comes back without legs or a cock. You came here as a draft dodger, insubordinate, and dropout. You transformed yourself into one of the top two soldiers on the base. We are here today to offer you a tremendous honor. We are inviting you to attend Officer Canada's school so you can become an officer in the United States Army. Sir, there are a lot of professions out there, sir. Banker, lawyer, doctor, and down through window washer, trash man, grave digger, U.S. Army officer, sir. The Army men raised their collective eyebrows. At the very bottom of that list are the syphilitic whores on the streets of Calcutta. He paused and cleared his throat. Sir, I would rather be that syphilitic whore than an officer in your fucking army, sir. <clears throat> so, that's... Defiance. I was a little defiant. <laughs> it was a little immature of me to speak out like that. Uh, things didn't get better following that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, off you are shipped and... Uh, the long and short of it is you fake suicide with a serious dose of pills, and that eventually got you an honorable discharge. He had been dismissed five months and 27 days into his service. Kelly got on a bus to take him downtown. At the bus station, he booked a ticket for Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And so on to Milwaukee you go. You're 25 years old. There you meet a woman named Cheryl. You move to San Francisco. Marry her and her, in a sense, two daughters. And then send her back to Milwaukee to get her daughters. She returns to San Francisco an addict. And then proceeds to have an affair with a heroin addict. And you two proceed to, in a sense, split up. 
but it's now the summer of 1967. It's the infamous summer of love. Cheryl left at the beginning of the summer of 1967, a time when San Francisco was on the verge of a cataclysmic transformation. The old institutions were crumbling under the force and power of the counterculture and new institutions had not yet formed to take their place. There is a sense of living evolution everywhere and of the youth of the city creating the future from the ruins of the present. It was an exhilarating time to be alive. In the midst of it, Dennis Kelly had returned to his old strength, confidence, and sense of purpose. This was indeed the height of the 60s, the summer of love, the 60s Paris, student rebellions, and this represented sort of everything you appreciated, free love, anti-authority, spirituality and drugs, new ideas, and you had quit your regular job and were now a full-time dealer with a sterling reputation. By the summer of 1968, Kelly was well-known as a dealer of integrity and ingenuity. He was simultaneously pursuing spiritual inquiry and hedonism, utterly unable to tell the difference between the two. That also must have been a pretty extraordinary period. Yes, I was uh, I was working for an engineering firm and uh, went to work one day and discovered on the way to work I wasn't wearing any shoes or a shirt. Right. <laughs> so I had to call my boss who didn't tell him I had to leave honorably because I was uh, past the point of return. Right. <laughs> And uh, he certainly sounded like a decent man. He had um, taken you in and, and uh, given you a job, really, um, you know, without any experience or anything like that, and just on trust. And, indeed, you turned out to be a, a very good uh, worker for him. So it was a little bit of a, um, a difficult decision for you to make, but you were, you know, making more dealing drugs uh, in a day or two than, than, than you were in uh, several weeks working as an engineer. Yeah, I backed into the drug dealing. It was never my intention to deal, but what happened is uh, people, because I had always very fine quality, people asked if I would please help them, could I help them, and everyone was using drugs back then. So I always did it without putting any commission on. And then if right. I was like, are you crazy, you could go to jail. Right. Put at least a 10 or 20 percent on, and all of a sudden, I had more money than I knew what to do with. Right. <laughs> and that continues. But at the same time, quote, his spiritual pursuits meant that he was spending more and more time practicing sitting meditation at the San Francisco Zen Center, studying under Suzuki Roshi, and trying to find whatever it was that LSD seemed to give him so effortlessly peace and a sense of self beyond the finite small ego. Kelly passionately believed that LSD was the key to a new spirituality, one that could transform the esoteric spiritual path and make it accessible to everyone. No more would people have to sit in pews or an audience and listen to self-proclaimed teachers talking about their insights into God or spirit or enlightened mind. LSD enabled everyone to have that experience. 
It was the great leveler that allowed anyone to experience the mind of God for his or herself. He liked nothing more than to give people LSD and watch them pop. This usually meant that they would have some kind of deeply spiritual experience, one that he would then use to explain to them how just such insight was the birthright of all humans, not just an elite few. Kelly was still drawn to meditation. From 1970 on, he always held open meditations at his home. The discipline and austerity of Zen was also deeply appealing, and he loved its extreme embrace of agnosticism that made God or angels or hell or morality all empty concepts and traps for the ego. Meditation, which Kelly took to easily and naturally, allowed him to experience the insights sober that he gained by taking LSD. You were then approached by two gentlemen, Russell and Larry, who proposed that the three of you go into not just uh, sale but manufacture of LSD. They approached you. You had a long conversation. Kelly, Russell, and Larry had, in a single conversation, laid the groundwork for what would become the Order of the Golden Frog, an LSD family that by 1972 would be grossing more than $2 million annually. You first produced what was known as Clear Light LSD and then Clear Light Window Pane LSD, by far the finest and purest LSD on the market, and you were a counter-cultural icon, friends with uh, everybody from Alan Watts to the Grateful Dead. And that, too, I think it's hard for people to understand all of these contradictions, how somebody could be deeply into a spiritual practice and also deeply into something like LSD. Because without understanding the effect that LSD had, the effect that the whole psychotropic movement had, whether it was psilocybin, mushrooms, uh, LSD, uh, is hard to understand. But in fact, it was um, perfectly possible to have both of these drives and both of these activities happening. Well, it was for me. <laughs> and it was for Aldous Huxley, and it was for Alan Watts, and it was for, you know, the whole list. Each of them is quite different. Well, that's true. Right. But you'll admit that each of them felt that they were doing something spiritual. Yes, and then the drugs, the particular drug or the particular ethnogen, I don't like using drugs because it yeah, yeah, yeah. groups it into category, you know, it's what I'm saying, but the, the yeah. pure psychedelic those that disintegrate your view and allow profound insight right. it's referred to as spiritual. So, yes, and I found it, uh, because of the experiences of the psychedelics, then I found the experiences that were being had in the contemplative traditions to, to mirror one another. Right. It was just a natural development, and also the, the, the pure agnosticism. I'm a Buddhist fundamentalist, I say. Right. And, uh, and in that case, the Buddhist teaching of selflessness, you know, suddenly, suddenly right. you 
you you can hear that because you've you <laughs> you've died exactly yeah and this is why I teach now that the ego is a temporary figment of divine imagination it's a self reassuring flickering inside the purity of a witness right consciousness so having had those experiences and suddenly you know this is what the Buddha was talking about and I'm convinced. I'm not convinced, but I'm suspicious that he also had profound uh, psychedelic experience. Yeah, yeah, and there's there's a lot of academic material that lends at least some support to that. So the combination uh, went forward for you in a way that was not contradictory in your mind or in many people's other minds at that time. And uh, ethnogen is is a better term than drug because drug implies something like heroin which you would have absolutely nothing to do with and psychedelic or ethnogen are uh, substances that affect perception in a way that as Aldous Huxley put it opens the doors of perception and allows us to see different realms of reality I still know people to this day that feel that especially combining meditation and ethnogens, you know, is a powerful way to gain spiritual insight. And, you know, you can argue with them or not, but they're maintaining this from, you know, moral and noble reasons, that they're not just, you know, druggies or junkies. No, and I concur. You know, this is my experience. Right. Like I said, I was just, for a decade, I was an urban shaman. This is what I did with my life. Yeah. What yeah. I did is, uh, you know, I facilitated and, and I not only manufactured, but I facilitated groups and individuals and, you know, in a set and setting that allowed them to experience, uh, you could say, spirit or soul or deep consciousness of their own divinity. Right. That was the, the reason, the purpose, and the intention, you know, to be involved in the psychedelic revolution, so-called psychedelic revolution. That's what drove me. Like right. Said, we, we never cared about money. Right. It was just something that was in a suitcase in the closet. Right. <laughs> and in in uh, in some cases, uh, quite large suitcases. Yeah, uh, large gold Halbertons. <laughs> While Kelly was very much getting into the LSD scene, he was also very much getting into the Buddhist scene. If the goal in Christianity is to be saved for some, or to see Christ consciousness, know the mind of Jesus for yourself, for others, then what is the goal and purpose of Buddhism? In a nutshell, people go to Buddhism to seek enlightenment, a state of being that masters supposedly inhabit in their day-to-day lives. This state of being fuels the wisdom, it is said, of the greatest masters, leading them to be outstanding guides to liberate other men and women from the prison of their own suffering. The gate of enlightenment has been called Satori, which might be considered the spiritual goal of Buddhism. Satori is a state where there is a flash of sudden awareness, of infinite peace, of getting the joke of life. In this space, there is no time, no ambition, no valuation. There is just the suchness of everything arising as it should, an endless perfection. Masters are said to be permanently in this space, giving them phenomenal equanimity, calmness, and presence of mind. Kelly was barely past two years old 
when he had had his Satori experience on the floor of a rented house in northern Wisconsin. That place, Satori, came to him from that moment on, easily and naturally. He had what most of us never dream of having, a safe place to retreat within our own minds. Becoming a Zen master some 50 years later wasn't as much of a choice as it was a response to that first intense experience. It was Dennis Kelly's inability to make sense of it and of his world that drove him first to the intensive use of psychedelics and eventually, a decade after that, to the monastery to train his mind in the vehicle of Buddhism. When Dennis Kelly discovered LSD in the mid-1960s, he found a substance that mimicked this enlightened state. He could induce in himself and in others exactly what Suzuki had said, and this is D.T. Suzuki, the scholar. Sudden flashing into consciousness of a new truth, hitherto undreamed of. It is a sort of mental catastrophe taking place all at once after much piling up of matters intellectual and demonstrative. The piling has reached a limit of stability and the whole edifice has come tumbling to the ground when, behold, a new heaven is open to full survey. And that was a widespread belief. Alan Watts, Aldous Huxley, Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, the excitement around psychedelics and their potentials is hard to convey, but especially when combined with meditation, many people thought was the royal road to God and enlightenment. They had the experience. And right. Once you have the experience, then what what can follow is that whole argument. Right. And it was very interesting, just a, a different story. Ada Roshi and I, I trained with him for a couple of decades, and uh, he's, he's my master right. of thinker recognition from. Right. And he would give public talks, and he would really rail against drugs, right, and saying right. that they were counterproductive. So I had a conversation with him, and I said, Roshi, first of all, unless you take LSD with me, you really can't say anything about it. <laughs> and he said it was unlikely that was going to happen. And I said, but let, let me t- let me ask a question in this room. He said, and he said, okay. So there were about eighty people there for a talk. And yeah. I said, how many people here think they're here because of their psychedelic experiences? And sixty-two people raised their hands. <laughs> So I said to him, Adoroshi, now, do I have to say anything else? The reason that they're here is because of their psychedelic experience. And you're saying psychedelics are bad. I'm saying heroin is bad. <laughs> but I wouldn't go so far as to say that unless you want to, you know, close the door on the 62 people that are here. All right. <laughs> oh, okay, Grasshopper, I understand. <laughs> that was the last time he spoke out against psychedelics. <laughs> Ah, beautiful. Um, Kelly turned to Zen with a newfound passion. What he saw in the men and women encountered in Zen centers was a transcendent wisdom, a way to rise above the petty smallness of ego and its dramas, tragedies, and pain. More than ever, he wanted to get away from the pain and vulnerability that relationships brought him 
to find a place where he could simply be above it all, safe from the turmoil of the world. Because of this, he decided to take longer Zen retreats and to make his own meditation practice a more solid and steady part of his daily life. At some point, you came to see Zen by itself as limited and uh, the need for a more comprehensive, uh, inclusive approach to be necessary, which is what eventually led you to the creation of Mondo Zen. In the meantime, Frank, Jesse, and Pretty Boy, which are the three of you in the LSD business at this point, refined their process and clear light window pane went into the streets of San Francisco, spreading quickly to surrounding cities. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash came flowing in. Their lives began to reflect it. Kelly bought sports cars in cash, but had them put in friends' names, wore custom-made Italian suits, had closets full of tailored clothing, owned several motorcycles, also in friends' names, lived in an opulent apartment, which he paid for in cash, and had a friend hold the actual lease, and traveled the world on exotic outings, enjoying scuba diving and sunning on remote beaches and at incredibly expensive resorts. That must have been something of the day. It was great. I remember one particular trip, and I chartered a sailboat and did a private dive at Lady Musgrove Island, the southern end of the Barrier Reef, with my beloved for a couple of weeks. That was oh, Lord. One of the charming little trips. Oh dear, yes, it sound it sounded like quite the life. Um, and yes, yesterday all my troubles seemed so far away. <laughs> but all part of this, you know, exquisite mixed drama that is your life. And Kelly lived like a god, felt like a god, and began to very nearly see himself as a god. As such, he took bigger and bigger risks, not just with the amounts of drugs he was taking but also with every area of his life, feeling immortal and unstoppable. In just seven short years, he had come from living on the streets, homeless and penniless, to having hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash at his disposal. He had money and power on a scale that seemed boundless and was nearly as famous as some of the musicians that were his customers. There was, though, that walled-off part of him None of those things touched. It made a mockery of his attempts to hold on to happiness. It was unaffected by his speeches about how acid was going to change the world and that he was serving humanity. It scoffed at money and power, turned up its nose at sex and drugs and security, and cared not for his fame. It whispered of its darkness in the quiet hours of the night, of its unrelenting agony, and his unacknowledged pain. The more Kelly tried to surround himself with bright, beautiful things, the more he felt its power. He was only free of it when his consciousness was transformed by LSD. But the effects of the drug would inevitably fade, and there would be again where it always was. He sat more and more at the San Francisco Zen Center, where Suzuki Roshi, a tiny, humble man, would give lectures in his broken English to ever-growing crowds. This simple man would pack an auditorium with eager listeners, but seemed immune to their praise, to their attention, 
or even to their presence. Kelly marveled at the man, for he knew the temptations that came from such prominence firsthand, and Suzuki seemed impeccable in every area of his life. After eight years watching him, listening to him speak, and sitting with him, Kelly, suspicious of any teacher or anyone who claimed to know more than he, suspected it was no act. The man seemed to possess something that few others had, a calmness, a confidence, a wisdom. Suzuki seemed to rest in the eye of the hurricane around which everything turned. Was that level of equanimity real, Kelly wondered. Could he obtain it without LSD? And that became, in a sense, the burning question that next really drove your life. Well, and also desperation drives life, or my experience for me anyway. And <laughs> I got to the point of desperation, you know, having profound non-dual realization in, insights and not having accomplished uh, stability. Right. All right. So it was like, okay, what do I do? What happened is, it gets into the book at points, but what happened is I, I would take larger doses. Right. Massive doses. Nearly died. Right. A couple of times. Right. So what happened was I realized I could not continue that particular path thinking that an ethogen was going to do the final work. Right. I would be dead in right. the process. So that meant, okay, now what? what is the path, the discipline path, that I can trust from philosophically, and that turned out to be Zen, and right. you know, and had the experience, and then, like I said, uh, Suzuki was primary in convincing me that yes, it was possible. Right, and I, I came to verify the depth of my my so-called enlightenment, but also to complete it, and and using a, a traditional vehicle. Right. But I found that the the Soto method. Uh, still not radical enough to capture right. right. And so as these taking larger and larger doses continued, and um, then you tell the story at one point where you take an amount of LSD that it, um, in, in quantity had probably never been taken before in history and um, very nearly kill yourself, even though LSD is a remarkably non-toxic drug. Um, but nonetheless, it, it was a, a very extreme experience. And well, I would you, say that I did kill myself. If, okay, sure. Um, there's no question that um, yourself died. When you come to, you hear repeatedly in your ear, go to India, you will find what you are seeking. And so, with your friend, Alan Marlowe, off to India you go. 